We have an update on the Miles Bridges situation. And is there a Charlotte Hornet that could be potentially on the trading block? We'll talk about all of that today on the Locked On Hornets podcast. Locked On Hornets, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Your team every day. In a minute, cause we live. We live. <laughs> It's Locked On Hornets, a part of the Locked On Podcast Network. It's your team every day. Thanks for making us your first listen. We're free and available anywhere you get your pods. Thanks for joining us, especially after a little bit of a hiatus, just a teeny one in the offseason. Took Friday off and then took Monday off, which is my fault. I've been on a trip. I've been traveling, doing a bunch of things. And so we're going to give you an episode the rest of the way, or at least try to. So I apologize. Do you forgive me, Doug? I know you were talking. I don't talk Hornets. I don't. Uh, I've been here languishing. My takes have been building up uh, and I'm I'm, I'm ready to fire them off. Let's go. All right, let's do it. Uh, maybe you save any fire takes for the first segment. You just save them for the second segment because we're going to talk about the Miles Bridges situation. Okay. I don't know if this is the environment for a fiery take, but we did get an update on the Miles Bridges situation. So the hearing or excuse me, the uh, court date that was scheduled and that took place a couple of days ago, really all that was was to schedule something for the future. It was a continuance. And so now you have Miles Bridges and the next court date, the preliminary hearing in L.A. County. It's set for Wednesday on September 7th. And Doug, it seems like that is going to be really the start of when some information can reveal itself on how long this is going to play out and what we're exactly we're dealing with. Possibly. I mean, I think we yeah. have to, we have to understand that, that these, these things can get delayed and, uh, and, and, and so forth. But yeah, I mean, if it does happen, then I think we'll know by that point, whether this is going to trial or not. And if it goes to trial, I'm, I don't know if they would set a date at that preliminary hearing, but we might get some more information as to, uh, what would happen and when that would happen. I, I think it's pretty much a guarantee that this will go into the regular season at this point. And so, look, the Charlotte Hornets have attached themselves to this legal process. They are letting it play out, and and it has completely frozen their ability. It's seemingly frozen their ability to do anything else. Yeah, I wonder how active they would have been had this not happened. We know that they would have given Miles Bridges a lot of money as a restricted free agent. I, we can assume and feel pretty good that they would have given him a ton of money. But how much would they have done outside of that? It's not like they were dealing with a ton of money outside of that anyway, right? So it's not like, hey, we could go out and get another star to put alongside Miles Bridges. It was always going to have to be via trade. So even if they're in activity seems to have been in part because of Miles Bridges' domestic violence, the felony charge, how much really would they have done outside of that had it not happened? I don't know. Yeah, it would have been really difficult because I think that contract, had it gone where we thought it was going to go, would have put them close to that luxury tax you know, window. And, and, and that is not something that this franchise has been interested in pursuing going into the luxury tax. And I don't think that would have changed this offseason, they would have had exceptions and different things that they could have used under the cap rules to add additional players. Uh, but I think if anything were going to happen, it would have been via the trade market. Doug, I have a question as far as the transition from the NFL and the NBA goes. And I bring that up because we saw Deshaun Watson's press conference with the Cleveland mm -hmm. Browns, and we saw Jimmy Haslam and D Haslam's press conference with the Cleveland Browns. You watched it, right? 
I mean, well, I mean, I got the I got the cliff yeah, the, notes. I didn't okay. watch the I didn't watch the press conference. I did see some of the quotes. So I I watched it, and it was a complete clown show. And people, right. it, well, one, it was weird that people were defending them. I mean, but not really. You can't be too surprised. But it was a complete clown show how the Haslam's were handling this. Jimmy or D, any time that somebody would be done with their comment. They would come in on the back end and said, wait, I just want to say something real quick. And if it weren't for the circumstances, it would be hilarious because every time they opened their mouth, hey, just one other comment real quick. Hey, I just want to say this. It was always worse. It was bad to begin with. And then they would just take the steering wheel and completely take the car over into the ditch rather than just driving off the road, which were the initial comments. It was insane. Yeah, I mean, it's just breaking the shovels out. Yeah, and and so... You know, if if you kind of wind this back to what the Hornets tacked on all of this has been, it has been quiet. And I mm-hmm. think the 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 silence, uh, the and they've they've done some press releases and says you know we're waiting on more information and so on and so forth. And that has I, I think that has justifiably frustrated people who want a resolution, a very quick resolution to this. Uh, but you know, I would say in their to their credit, they haven't done anything uh, that, in hindsight, would make them look very foolish. So, you know, and and and, and you know, look, today's world, we want it super fast. We want the comments to come as quickly as possible. We want the resolutions to be as quick as possible. Uh, but they have again, they've attached themselves to this justice system, which is going to move at the pace that the justice system moves, which is typically very very slow. Yeah, different situations with Deshaun Watson and Miles Bridges. But, Doug, how much do you think the NBA is watching how Cleveland and the NFL have handled what's gone on with Deshaun Watson and how they might institute a punishment and just, for lack of a better term, handle the situation with Miles Bridges? Do you think that they're going to be watching and maybe taking, hey, this is what they did poorly and we're going to try to do the exact opposite or, you know, whatever? Like, how much are they evaluating that process? I think one would assume they they are because, I mean, the NBA has always tried to set itself apart from the NFL on social justice issues, on, on all kinds of issues. Uh, and so I think, yeah, I think they, they will obviously evaluate that. The, the NBA does not want to find themselves in a, in a similar position to the NFL. So, I, and but you're right, this is different, right? I mean, this is a criminal case. Um, you know, and as much as we talk about Walker, what the what the team could do, you know, release Miles Bridges or find some way out of the of the qualifying offer. As much as we talk about what the NBA could do in terms of punishments, we have to also understand that Miles Bridges is facing three felony counts and possibly multiple years in prison. Dude could be going to straight jail. So this isn't, you know, that's that's what I'm saying. As we as we kind of enter this process. Um, you know, depending on what happens on September 7th, you know, th- this could be going to a trial that determines whether Miles Bridges is able uh, uh, to, you know, uh, to, to walk freely or, or has to go to prison. So th- we've, we've got a, a long way to go. And unfortunately, again, the, the Hornets are, are in this situation now where, where they are tied to this legal process and which probably will not have a, a resolution going into the regular season. And so I think that Cliff, that Steve Clifford and the rest of the organization has to operate as if they're, they're not going to have Miles Bridges at all. Well, and I'll finish up with a couple of thoughts. The, the one thing I continue to think about is 
when Judge Sue Robinson, she was the independent arbiter that took a look at the Deshaun Watson case that saw over 20 allegations of sexual assault slash misconduct, when she mm -hmm. took that over and then decided that an initial suspension should be around six games, and we talked about her hiding behind the camouflage of there not being, quote unquote, a violent act in place, how different that is with the Miles Bridges situation, if you need that act of violence, which is mm, kind of, you know, makes you crawl on your skin a little bit, the fact that you yeah. need that in order to suspend right. these players a little bit longer. But you have that with Miles, and that's something that the NBA does not have to tiptoe around. I mean, this is an egregious, gross allegation and act that took place. So you can go ahead and bring down the hammer on Miles Bridges and anything less if these things come out to be true, if he pleads guilty, anything less, the NBA is going to rightfully so get destroyed for. I, that. That's why I think this NBA, I think the Miles Bridges story is not very big right now. It's probably never going to get as big as Deshaun Watson because of the position that he plays, because it's a more popular sport, because of the sheer quantity of the allegations that took place. But it's mm -hmm. going to be pretty damn big because the NBA hasn't seen anything like this. The fact that domestic violence doesn't run as rampant in the association as it does in the National Football League. But this one, this one with Miles Bridges, it's huge. And the other difference, too, between Cleveland and Charlotte and how they've handled players with these allegations, it's the fact that Cleveland went after the opportunity at a historic rate to employ that guy in Deshaun Watson. Okay, mm -hmm. They didn't have him on his team, on their team, and they still pursued him, whereas Miles was already on the team. You were supposed to make a decision on if you wanted to extend him. He had already giving him the qualifying offer. And so they're in a, a weird situation, a unique one, if you will, considering what's taken place with Charlotte. And so they're kind of just like, all right, hands off deck. Now we're going to let the legal system play out. They're not pursuing. They're not giving them more money. And this isn't to absolve the Hornets of any wrongdoing you might think they've experienced. It's just different from Cleveland going after Deshaun Watson, hell or high water and giving him 250 mil guaranteed compared to Miles that's kind of in this holding pattern right now. Yeah, the NBA is in a holding pattern. The Charlotte Hornets as an organization are in a holding pattern. You haven't seen a, a ton of players uh, come out in support. Uh, you haven't really seen any players come out in support of Miles Bridges uh, other than a, a, a very vague uh, reference that didn't directly reference Miles Bridges by Cody Martin in a write-up uh, over Summer League by uh, the Charlotte Observer. Uh, you have seen Miles Bridges play with uh, some NBA players during some workouts. You've caught lots him in of in the background photos. A lot of yeah, background, I mean, right? So, yeah. but it's not, but but it's not foreground. It's it's in it's in the background, and and who knows how those situations and workouts develop. I think you did see a Bulls player like tweet out a Miles Bridges rap lyric, and some people were like, "Hey, hey, buddy, <laughs> I want to, <laughs> yes. I want to hold off on That's on correct. tweeting those lyrics for a little while." Oh, I forget who did that. That's right. Um, so there was a little, there was a little minor backlash, but everybody right now, including Hornets fans, are in a holding pattern, and it doesn't look like that holding pattern is going to let up anytime soon. It's very quiet. I expect this to be a pretty damn big story, even now. What? What? And it, and it will be big because I think the the precedent for these kinds of incidents in terms of punishments. I, re I really have to look at Jeff Taylor, a former, yeah. uh, a former Bobcat. That's right. Um, to, to look at, and I don't think that's that suspension would cut it today. 
So I think any suspension for Miles Bridges, if if that's something that the NBA pursues in the future, would be unprecedented. And and they could look to the MLB as a as a model for that. Uh, where what, what's happened uh, with Trevor Bauer? Well, and we also have photo evidence of this that the media has yeah. already seen, and we know, and it's not a good thing to be honest with you, because we don't, we should not need video or photo evidence to then believe the woman who is putting these allegations on someone. But we do have that, right? That was the thing that made Ray Rice a little bit different when that took place at first, right? And yeah, and and Jeffrey Taylor pushed a woman across a hotel room. I'm not here to say what's okay and what's not. Clearly, he should have been suspended more than 24 games, and it probably would happen a little differently today. Miles Bridges apparently put all of those, or reportedly put all of those injuries on Michelle Johnson. Like, yeah, it's, yeah, this is a little different. All right, coming up next on the Lockdown Hornets podcast. Don't go to sleep on the Hornets just yet. We're going to talk about the Chicago Bulls, and if there's a Hornet that could be on the trade block, maybe in exchange for somebody that plays for Chicago. We'll get to that in just a moment. If you keep on saying you need to make a budget, but never do, if somehow you keep missing credit card payments, if you're afraid to look at your bank statements, then it's time you take back control of your financial life. Meet Rocket Money, formerly Truebill, our favorite financial app. So why did Truebill change its name to Rocket Money? Well, we'll tell you what we heard. Truebill, now backed by Rocket Companies, has grown from a bill management app into a full-on personal finance empowerment tool that helps over three 3.4 million people with budgeting, lowering bills as well, canceling subscriptions, and even more than that, saving each of their members on average $700 a year. And with all that growth comes the next evolution in Truebill's story, a new name. Bottom line, Rocket Money is everything I've loved about Truebill, but with a fresh look and feel. Start canceling your unused subscription and save money at rocketmoney.com slash NBA. That's rocketmoney.com slash NBA. or download the app from the Apple App Store or Google Play Store. Going to talk a little bit more about the trade block coming up next. Locked on Hornets. Is Locked on Hornets. And the Google description here says on contracts made before June, where the wheat is deliverable in December, either wheat of the grades named or numbered, <laughs> B shares Batik of New York, N.B.A. So take that for what you will. That's a lot of information I just threw at you. I apologize. What was the grade? The Yeah, the wheat was graded uh, C minus. Let's get them on. It's time for more of the Locked on Hornets podcast. Doug is our boy, Sean Devaney, at it again. Ah, uh, yeah, he's at it again. Oh, <laughs> Shawnee boy. Well, you he, don't like him. I'm fine with him. You don't You don't seem to like him, but I'm fine with well, him. Well, it's, it's not that I I just don't I don't trust Sean Devaney's reporting. You know, we haven't seen anything that leads us to believe that these things have actually taken place. And so with this latest reporting from Sean Devaney, he says, and I know you have the words up here, I think, right in front of your face, Doug, but Kelly Oubre is somebody that has been discussed that could be potentially on the move to Chicago. What would the details around that be? Uh, well, this is the the reporting. Uh, this says, quote, Charlotte, this is from heavy.com that is, uh, I think, reporting on the Devaney rumor. Uh, it says, Charlotte is one of the other teams that has looked for a big guy, but they're not desperate to do it. If you, I don't know. <laughs> Let me just stop there. Let me stop the quote. <laughs> the Hornets should be desperate. <laughs> I, I'm desperate. I'm desperate to see mm -hmm. the, the Hornets actually have a, a center uh, worth anything. So that would be great. Uh, all right. Continuing on in the quote. If you're Chicago and you could get Gordon Hayward in a deal like that, I think you give that a go. Even with the injury stuff, more likely you're looking at Mason Plumley and someone like Kelly Oubre. 
Uh, the Bulls gave up two picks for Vooch. They're going to want something in return if they trade him. They would much rather just bring him back, maybe maybe even extend him, then see if he plays better. This is from an unnamed NBA executive talking about the Bulls situation there. Vooch's name coming up there, Walker, and that's the name that immediately came to mind for me because Vooch has a history with Steve Clifford. What will you think about Vucevic coming back uh, to or coming to Charlotte in a deal for uh, somebody like Kelly Oubre? I would not want to give up anything of real value to go get Vooch. He's a good offensive player, but he's also on the wrong side of 30. He was 31 last year. And when we've already talked about this potential rumor. Remember when, yes, the Charlotte Hornets, surprise, they needed a center. And Vucevic was also in some rumors, hey, maybe Charlotte could go after Nicola. And Steve Clifford can send one of his better players from Orlando back to his old stomping grounds in Charlotte. I even said at the time when people were pointing to his three-point percentage and his offensive prowess, that was the guy on an Orlando Magic team that wasn't very good. And so I'm not going to call them empty stats. Vucevic is a good, solid NBA player, especially offensively. But the three-point percentage was a little bit of an outlier compared to his previous seasons that he played. He shot 40% in that year. That got him an all-star bid, I believe, his last season with Orlando. And then he goes to Chicago. You know, the three-point percentage hasn't been very good, right? Like, it was 40% there, and it's kind of sat, you know, maybe even like 34 before that. So it was a little bit of an outlier. And I don't view him as a defensive stopper. You know, I think certainly on the perimeter, not going to be able to move his feet. He's getting older as a big guy every day, which is going to make you just that less mobile. But no, you actually came across some stats that indicate maybe he's a solid interior defender, which was surprising to me. Yeah, I'll get to those in just a second. I did want to share some intel that I got from Locked On uh, Magic here, the Philip Rossman Reich, the host of that show. I asked him on Twitter, you know, was Cliff a fan of Vucevic and vice versa? Did those did those two work well together in Orlando? Could that be, you know, behind this rumor somewhat that Clifford may be asking, hey, I need a big, I need somebody that can help this team rebound because they were, they were terrible at rebounding mm-hmm. last season. Vuce could do that. And here's what uh, Philip Rossman Reich said. Clifford loved Vooch in Orlando. Everyone thought Vooch was getting dealt before his contract expired. Then Clifford built his offense around him, made him an all-star, and dragged the team to the playoffs. That first all-star bid for Vucevic coming under uh, the Clifford era. And I did uh, pull up some stats here from Basketball Reference, their player profile series, to look at some of the top talent areas for Vucevic. Defensive rebounding, again, the Hornets were awful at defensive rebounding last season. It cost them games, giving up second-chance points and not being able to secure extra possessions. So that, that would be huge for them. But also look at this second one, interior defense, a top talent area according to Basketball Index, offensive rebounding and playmaking. So if I scroll down here to those uh, interior defense numbers, you can see rim deterrence, A minus, percentage of rim shots contested, A plus, rim rim contest per 75 possessions, A plus, uh, blocks per 75 possessions, B plus, all of this relative to his position uh, center and the rest of the league. Uh, but these post-defense numbers look good. Now, perimeter defense-wise, he's giving you nothing. Like It's not a switchable defensive center. He is somebody that you, you are going to put in to drop coverage and, and pray. Uh, but, you know, in terms of interior defense, I think this is uh, at least, and this was for last season, uh, in that Chicago mm-hmm. system, did well. 
Yeah, and I wonder, just based off of other people's opinions, real quickly, I've not done a deep dive on Vucevic and watched him play and looked at a ton of possessions for his interior defense. But based off, you know, what Zach Lowe would talk about, and I know like Chris Haynes, I believe, just when they would discuss the Bulls, because they were such a fascinating team, the way that they went after it at the beginning of the season, they were awesome for so long, then they had some injuries. It felt like that defense was so reliant on Alex Caruso and Lonzo Ball wreaking havoc in the backcourt, I would imagine that would make a big man's life a lot easier, especially last season. And if you're looking at those defensive numbers and they're only indicating that last year that he did well in the position that he was put in, that might make some sense. I was still a little surprised to see some of these numbers. Um, but if you know Basketball Index is putting him as, hey, maybe we've underrated him as a defender, then Maybe that's something that would help the Hornets. Mm -hmm. Again, I worry about the age and giving up anything of real consequence to go get that guy aging. Well, so here's what's interesting is that I looked, so I changed this up and looked at his numbers from 1819, that first all-star year under Clifford. And his rim deterrence numbers were actually pretty awful. Rim deterrence being like how right. how much can Vucevic move a guard away from the paint and keep him from getting in? That grade drops all the way to an F. He was in the 11th percentile for that. But his rim protection numbers, you know, once a guard got there or once some other player got to the rim, uh, how well did he protect the rim? Those numbers still uh, really good. Yeah, um, so so, so maybe some, some interesting stuff there. But here's what I think is interesting, too, is that look at these screening and roll numbers, uh, Walker. And and I, I didn't show you these for the Bulls, but they weren't very good last year when he was he wasn't a great screen and roll big uh for the Chicago Bulls, but he was an amazing screen and roll big under Clifford. And as much as we talk about interior defense, the the, the Hornets also need to give LaMelo Ball a big that he can work with in the screen and roll. Mark Williams is gonna going to do some of that in the future. But next season, Vooch would be a really good screen and roll big, I think, for uh, LaMelo Ball. I think he would work really well, not only on the roll, but also on the pick and pop. Well, yeah, and, and not necessarily a lob threat, you think, for Vooch, but the pick no. and pop would be something that would work for No, but for, he's just, so once he gets the ball in his hands, yeah. he's going to be solid. He, he knows, yeah. how, he knows no, what I, to do with it once he gets the ball in his hands. Oh, no, I, I'm not. No, I agree with you for the most part. Yeah, I just think when you talk about the athleticism, when you think of Amontrez Hale, right, who we know was a good pick and roll player with LaMelo Ball, those two had a synergy that was awesome to watch, and there were a lot of lobs or a lot of dunks for Montrez where he'd look at you and get nasty with it. That's not what you're to get from a Vooch on the pick and roll synergy that would take place between him and LaMelo, but he would do his damage in a different way. Like offensively, yeah, I mean, Vooch still a good player. I think an overrated shooter based off what he did his last season in Orlando, but still there is a very useful player offensively. And you mentioned the rebounds, Doug, always been a good rebounder. You know, it was always shown double digits, his average 11, like the last six seasons or something like that. If you go look at his basketball reference page, you got something else you want to talk about maybe with LaMelo before we move on to the next segment? Yeah, so I, I pulled this tweet up too. This is uh, the guy who's behind Basketball Index, Cranjus McBasketball on Twitter. Um, uh, Tim uh, underscore NBA is the Can, at, can his um, real name just be Cranjus McBasketball? I Let's would, just call I'd him Cranjus. I would legally change it if it were me. Okay. Um, but so he, he was comparing some numbers uh, for uh, LaMelo Ball in terms of his finishing, his three-point shooting playmaking relative to the rest of the league. And LaMelo has been excellent. Um, but, you know, he's mentioning here, hey, let's get Ball a better roll and cut big 
that mm-hmm. roll gravity paired with his game. Because we talk a lot about how like LaMelo needs to finish better at the rim. But in fairness to LaMelo, they haven't had a big that can take some of that attention away from LaMelo when he does drive the basketball. But if you have a guy like Vooch, you have to respect his offensive game. And so that's going to open up things for LaMelo Ball as well. Uh, so I, I think it would be all around. Again, yeah, I'm, I don't know if I'm giving up first round picks or anything like that. But if you're talking about Kelly Oubre and Mason oh, yeah. Plumley for Vooch, I'm doing that. I'm doing that all every day, even even Sunday. I'm doing that on Sunday. Yeah. Oh, no. I Yes, I'll show up early to do that on Sunday. I don't know if Chicago would. What would she what would help Chicago? That that's the part that's tough for me. Well, maybe Kelly Oubre shooting. I mean, so just a little bit more offensive punch for Chicago. I mean, you know, a lot of their a lot of their damage is done from two, and they had some success with that, but not enough success with that last season. So Kelly Oubre, that microwave three point shooting that the Hornets benefited from last season, they could get some of that in return. And in, in those transactions that are taking place, just send Chicago the first half shooting numbers for Kelly. Hide the second half. Try to get basketball reference to get rid of those second half numbers. Just send them the first half, and maybe we can get all of this to take place. All right. Coming up next on the Lockdown Hornets podcast. Don't go to sleep on the Hornets just yet. We continue our who wore it best journey. We go down each number that's ever been worn in Charlotte Hornets slash Bobcats history and decide who wore it best. That's coming up next on the Lockdown Hornets podcast. Is Locked on Hornets. Then I clicked on M. Thomas. I'm like, who in the hell is M. Thomas? Matt Thomas is oh, his name. Oh, NBA legend, Matty Thomas. Matt Thomas, I'm pretty sure Matt Thomas served me at an Applebee's the other day. It's time for more of the Locked on Hornets podcast. Who wore it best? It is the question that we have been asking for a couple of weeks now. We're crawling along. I didn't realize that it would take us this long to get to these numbers. And now we're getting to the point where... I mean, almost every digit is going to be worn, at least here soon. Like every single number we look at, we even have two zeros. We have double zero. We have zero. So still a little bit of a journey before we get to the start of the regular season taking place October 19th against the Spurs. But we have some time, and we're going to take that time right now to go to who wore it best. Remember, the rules are you have to have worn this jersey number, and we're going to, we're going to talk about the time that you wore that. If you switched, we can't take your resume with whatever number you switch to and apply it to your previous number. And it has to, of course, be with your time playing for the Charlotte Hornets. Doug, what number do we have next? Well, before we do that, we got to run it down. Of course, we got to go tell you uh, who's who wore it best uh, all the way through. So number 98, Arnoldus Kulbica, the only person to have worn the number 98 and the number 55, we gave it to Chris Douglas Roberts, number 54, Lee Nalon nails mm-hmm. number 52, the Geiger counter, Matt Geiger, number 50, Emeka Okafor, Number 45, the hammer, Armin Gilliam. Number 44, this went to a vote. It uh, ended up being D.C., Derek Coleman. Number 43 went to Anthony Tolliver. Number 42, P.J. Brown. Number 41, of course, the great Glenn Rice. Number 40, we gave it to Cody Zeller, the long-suffering Bobcat and Charlotte Hornet. Number 35 went to the sp- <laughs> the frosted tips, Tommy T, Tom Tolbert. <laughs> <laughs> number 35 uh we do you remember gave, <laughs> yeah, we, gave it to, <laughs> we gave it to world class gerald glass that's right 
That's right. We we because fought we, so hard who to give this to, and nobody had a resume that was worthy. Well, we couldn't we couldn't bear to give it to Adam Morrison, unfortunately. We so couldn't. It was, and, and and because of his nickname, World Class Glass, we gave it to Gerald simply because of his nickname. And I think he played like what did he play fifteen games? It was something ridiculous. Yeah, but still he wore it. Something best. very small. All right, number thirty four went to J.R. Reed, uh one of the uh first uh big draft picks in Charlotte Hornets history. So here we are. We go yeah. to number 33, and I see Kenny Gaddison gets his second chance here at number 33. Who could possibly up? Oh, well, yep. of course. Nope. Number 33. How could we forget? Matt Carroll. Right. Number 30. That's going to be tough. Got to give it tough. to Matt Carroll. A <laughs> couple of stints with the Charlotte Hornets slash Bobcats, but actually just Bobcats. So Matt Carroll, I think, only right. put on a yeah, Bobcat. No, he never Cats wore year. the teal and purple. Yeah, never did that. Did come over a couple of times. This is the time, 2011-2012, that he wore number 33. The other players, Brendan Haywood, a Tar Heel favorite, Jamario mm-hmm. Davidson, Jermaine Jones, who we just learned was the player to score the last bucket of the 1990s. Had a big year. Had a big year 2006. Mm-hmm. Could be a contender here. Uh, very much so. Yeah. Hersey Hawkins, a great basketball name, was a solid player wherever he went. That includes his first stint with the Charlotte Hornets, but also a one that was well, this 33 would be his second yeah. stint in 2001 with the, uh, with the Hornets. I believe he retired after his stint during that again, run. another shot. Again, we've been through so many players at this point yeah. who ended their career in Charlotte, just like a real quick stint in Charlotte. Maybe it's a great place to retire. I mean, Kimba, I think Kimba still has a house here. Well, and the Hornets don't necessarily bring back people that they employed before, right? That's not something no. No, they never did. Okay. Anyways, Charles Shackelford is another player that wore 33, just a great North Carolina basketball name more than a 1999. And then there's Zoe. Oh, how can, Maybe. oh my God, what are we doing? <laughs> of course. Alonzo so. morning from 93 to 95, a short stint, his only stint, but was dominant during his time with the Hornets has the best moment in Charlotte Hornets history, hitting the playoff winner against the Boston Celtics. You thought after that shot, the Hornets were really going somewhere possibly going to go deep into the playoffs was awesome immediately upon stepping into the NBA too. average 21 points or more in every single season was the defensive menace was a two-time all-star in a sophomore and junior campaign with the Hornets the only reason you would say he's not the best to ever wear it is because you might feel a little salty in how he left the organization but was clearly one of the best players to ever don a Hornets uniform certainly the number 33. What it's interesting that Kenny Gaddison's name comes up here alongside Alonzo Mourning because the the Charlotte Hornets uh, were in a, a bit of a uh, contract dispute with Alonzo Mourning coming into the league because uh, back when Alonzo Mourning was coming into the league from college, uh, players A were a lot more seasoned. Like you, you know, you were going to come in and immediately have an impact, especially if you were a top pick. And second, there was no rookie pay scale. So you could pay, you know, Alonzo Mourning or whoever. You could pay these guys whatever you wanted to. And so they were demanding higher contracts. Alonzo Mourning held out and actually missed a few regular season games. But in order to move money around to afford uh, uh, to pay Alonzo Mourning, the Hornets were considering trading Kenny Gaddison. And it almost led to a team revolt led by Larry Johnson, who said, if you trade Gat, you trade me. (laughs) It's awesome. Uh, so led to a little mini mutiny by the team who loved Kenny Gaddison. 
Uh, so it's interesting that their names show up here together. And you can see, of course, Kenny Gaddison wore the number three from 1990 to 1992. And then Alonzo takes it in 93. I just can't believe that Alonzo only spent three seasons in Charlotte. He I has know. such a, because he, he occupies such a huge space within the Hornets mythos, but he only spent three seasons here. It's crazy. Three seasons is nothing, Doug. And the fact that he is still, one, it speaks to the Charlotte Hornets' lack of success. If the Hornets had any kind of tradition in the winning department, maybe Alonzo would be viewed not as an afterthought, but not nearly as highly as we think of him. In fact, I've said this a few times. It's probably, it's one of my biggest mistakes in the top 30 Hornets list. I put Zoe above LJ, and it was really just because of his on-court effect. And people, like Alonzo is a guy that was considered for the top 75 players of all time in the 75th anniversary, he made it to some publications that took their own project on, but Zoe was at least considered for that. This guy was really good, but the longevity for Zoe, the way he left, you have a little bit of a Kenny Gaddison, Derek Coleman conversation, right? Where Gatman is loved with the Should Hornets. I put this to a vote? Should I put Gaddison against Morning too? No. He already lost to DC. I if don't if think he loses to DC, then you have to lose. <laughs> I, I think Kenny should have got it over DC, to be honest, but there's no way. There's no way you can give Gaddison the award over Alonzo, despite the bad taste in our mouths and how he left. It's one of the unfortunate things I think about Hornets history. Mm -hmm. It's it's fortunate that we got it back, right? That it went to New Orleans. It 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 took a trip to New Orleans, had some fun, partied for a little while, and then we we got to come back home. So that's it's nice that we we as a city and as fans we own that history now. But the history doesn't claim us in some ways. Like Alonzo Mourning, it doesn't. Yeah. I don't feel like has a great relationship with the organization, if any relationship. We know LJ's feelings about uh charlotte and the organization even though everybody's gone like shin's gone bob bass is gone all, the, all these people that were involved in these deals they're gone um it doesn't matter that like you can't get lj to to speak about anything hornets related the only one is mugsy mugsy is doing this uh, you know, he's too. on this podcast with scott fowler he he loves the city and loves the hornets and is still here and that's that's amazing but lj and zoe big part of that hornets mythos and they don't really care. I, I will say with LJ, I had a chance to go to a signing here in Charlotte at a brewery around town when it was Muggsy and it was Larry Johnson. They were both doing it. And I do think Larry embraces the hell out of his time here. Love yeah. the players that he played. And you're right oh, sure. about yeah. that. R right. I, I don't, I don't know. I know Zoe has made some comments, I think before that have, you know, he said he embraced his time here. We know how it went during that during that time in history. I do think there's a little bit of a difference with Larry. I'm not saying you were saying otherwise, but but Larry did seem to fully, yeah, mugsing him tight. Loved the players around here. And it's why, like, he didn't want to leave, right? Zoe wanted to leave. Larry didn't right. want to leave. Oh, it was and that's two probably different situations. The Absolutely. Mm -hmm. but, but salty but salty nonetheless on all yeah. that. And and when you look at that early Hornets history, it was littered with the organization making extremely savvy trades to transition into completely new eras where you still competed in the Eastern Conference and won 50 games, but it led to the, it led to the saltiness. And so, you know, this organization now uh, does it reach those heights, uh, but has, you know, Kimba, ha I think Kimba still has a great relationship with the organization, but, but it's probably partly because they didn't take advantage of Kimba's ascension and, and didn't trade him 
and, and try to utilize that to, to build up more assets to actually go and achieve something of greatness. So, you know, well, it, 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 you can kind of turn this around as a fan and say, well, hey, I'll take the saltiness if you give me 50 wins every well, once in a while. And the other thing, we, we don't talk about it as much either, but everybody was angry at the Hornets for letting Kimba Walker walk. Maybe not everybody, but there's a large portion of Hornets fans that wanted to keep Kimba Walker. And eventually it was the right move. There's just no doubt about it. With Larry Johnson, I think fans were angry that he left until Anthony Mason comes in and is awesome for a couple of mm -hmm. years with this organization. And so we don't necessarily think about the time where people wanted LJ to stay. And here's Bob Bass and the Charlotte Hornets once again, constructing an awesome, like lower tier star trade to go get somebody and help them win despite moving on from talent in a, a mid-market team. It's really incredible. Like, I, I wonder how many other mid-market teams were able to navigate the way Bob Bass did by just kind of hopping on to a different star once it was time for them to leave because their, their run was pretty damn impressive through the night. Well, you know what? Bob Bass did something. He did something in the <laughs> offseason. What, what a concept. Going out in the offseason, you know, getting on the phone, getting some deals done, man. Just just an incredible time to be a Hornets fan. Yeah, and during the 90s, we'll see if Mitch Kupchak can do something during Anything. this time as we're uh, Hornets fans. Yeah, you're, you're just one anybody right now, and it would be nice for somebody to come over and help this team out. All right, that'll do it. Number 33, the only number we'll dissect today, but it's a big one. Alonzo Mourning is the player who wore it best. Thanks for joining us, making us your first listen. We're free and available anywhere you get your podcast. Also, go check out Locked On NBA. Uh, it's your daily 30-minute update on everything taking place within the association. Make sure you tune in tomorrow. We'll be releasing a LaMelo Ball special. It was his 21st birthday. Happy birthday, LaMelo. August 22nd, he turned 21 years old. We'll be giving you our favorite 21 facts slash memories slash moments on LaMelo Ball in his short time with the Charlotte Hornets and beyond. So make sure you check that out again. Have a great rest of your day. We'll be back with you tomorrow.